Welcome to I Am the Space Where I Am. This is your host, Tony Award-winning set designer, John Arnone. In this podcast series, I'll be one-on-one with designers, playwrights, directors, and actors, and we'll be discussing the lives and careers of legendary theater luminaries and how their work developed. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the show. Brian Webb is one of the most distinguished international associate set designers working in the theater today. His astonishing varied credits include Tina, the Tina Turner musical, which has taken him to Broadway, Hamburg, Utrecht, Madrid, and Sydney. His pioneering work on Disney's Tarzan was represented on Broadway, the Netherlands, Hamburg, Stuttgart, and Oberhausen. He masterminded Beauty and the Beast on Broadway and the new 2021 UK tour. Brian recreated for Mike Nichols' revival of Death of a Salesman, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, Joe Melziner's original Tony Award-winning designs. Recently, he guided the Broadway designs for To Kill a Mockingbird, starring Jeff Daniels. Among his numerous Broadway productions are Meet Me in St. Louis, Man of La Mancha, The Full Monty, and Manelli on Manelli, starring the irresistible Liza Manelli. We are grateful for his taking the time from his busy schedule to be with us today. It is my privilege to know and to welcome Mr. Brian Webb. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us, Brian. I found this one quote from Joe Melziner. He said, the theater is truly the home of magic, of illusion, and of wonder. It is not and cannot be and should not be the real world. It simulates, it heightens, it transposes. It is why we all go on loving the unreal world of midways and carnivals. It is why the Broadway theater, with all its physical drawbacks, its artistic inadequacies, its high prices can still at best pack them in. Live theater is still the dwelling place of wonder. That was Joe Melziner in like 1952. (laughs) I'm sort of wondering his reference to high prices at that time. I think tickets were going for something like, what, $1.75 to $5 a pop? Brian, I'm going back historically. What was your original motivation or interest in the archival recreation of Joe Melziner's set design for Death of a Salesman? Where, where did it all begin with you? I think at your suggestion, you were the one who mentioned to me that the New York Public Library had was the repository of his life's work. And one rainy Saturday, the new the public library was redoing their performing arts section. So they had moved all of their collection down to a warehouse that was just down the street from the film center where we were. And I went I went there for a visit just to look at a list of what they had. I don't think they had an online directory at that point. And when they started pulling information out of the amount of work that they had of his, I thought, oh, let me see something. So that particular day, I called up the the boxes for the original production of South Pacific, which I was more interested in. 
and the production of Death of a Salesman. And I tell you, going through those boxes, when you lifted the, the lid off of them, you could smell his studio. And I went through South Pacific, which was really, really wonderful for its graphic quality. There were a lot of paint elevations and ground plans, and it was beautiful and it was colorful. You know, the, the color in the elevations is something you never appreciate it because all, most of the pictures of the original production are black and white. When I got to Death of a Salesman box and opened it up and the floor plan was the first thing that was on the top of the drawing. And I just gasped because the floor plan was nothing quite like I imagined from what I had seen from Painter's Elevation, his beautiful renderings and the photographs of the set. The, the floor plan was much more complex. And there wasn't a right angle in it. And uh, there were all these different levels and it was a beautifully drawn plan. And so uh, my heart started to race and I thought, I need to explore this more. You know, we, we, we only now have of the original design what was captured in photograph from 1949. And I wanted to explore walking around that set or at least in the auditorium, you know, going from side to side. And I said, well, the thing I should do or I want to do is recreate it and model. I'm not sure now if anyone can just gain uh, admittance to anybody's archives there. They can. I know that things were quite different during COVID. And af even after the opening of the library after COVID, they had limitations as to the number of people who could visit a day because they had to keep them farther apart. That was the only limitation I've noticed. In fact, I believe copyright laws, or at least the library's interpretation of them might have loosened up since since I first visited. When I first visited, there was no mechanical copying at all. You couldn't photograph or Xerox or blueprint or trace anything in their collection. I know today they at least allow you to photograph things, which is amazing to me. That was going to be my next question is when you started looking through the box and decided that you wanted to further investigate, how did you transfer? How, how did you document? How did you copy what was in the box if you couldn't Xerox it? I'm interested in the mechanical process of what you went through. Well, I, I naively asked them if I could take the drawings away and make blueprint copies of them myself and bring them back. <laughs> they said, no, that would not be allowed. And I said, how about tracing? And they said, no, you can't, you can't lay anything over the drawings and trace them. So I thought about, you know, going back to what we were taught in scenery design and scene painting, thought, well, how about I'll offer this? What if I came up with a scheme where I create an 11 by 17 page paper with a quarter inch grid on it with ABC on the bottom and one, two, three on the top vertically. And I came in with a bunch of those blanks and I came in with an acetate of that same grid. Could I then lay my blanks beside the drawing, lay my acetate on top of the drawing? So I put the coordinate system basically over his drawing and then plot it out point by point. I could see that an intersection was happening here at, let me see, three and come over here, D, and then I would put a point on my drawing and then I would connect the lines. So they actually allowed you to put the, lay the acetate on top of it? They would allow me to lay the acetate, yes. Hmm. What was the process in terms of color elevations? I was surprised, actually, because uh, of what I had seen of the South Pacific volume of color elevations that the collection they had for Death of a Salesman lacked the color elevations. I believe what happened was that there was a revival done in Washington, D.C. sometime in the 70s, could be early 80s. And for some reason, the color elevations never made it back to the collection. So... There were all of these exquisite 
drawings and draftings, but no color, with the exception of what existed in people's collections. I know a lot of the sketches were executed by Mr. Melziner. I'm wondering if his associate, John Harvey, who I think worked on Death of a Salesman, was responsible for any of the mechanical drawings or not. Uh, he was. I, they, uh, Melziner was very meticulous about how he uh, labeled his drawings, and they had a system in the office where he began with the first show he designed his drawing, show number one, and he every show got a number, and there was a space for the drawing description, its scale, when it was made, and who did it. And John Harvey's J.H. appears on a good deal of, if not all, of the final shop drawings. The drawings are done on basically onion skin, and every drawing is a different size. It's, the drawing was just as big as it needed to contain the information. But it was clear that whoever drew it was working with a mechanical pen, pencil, because the, the quality of the line was so, so perfect and so fine. But what I really truly feel was the process in that studio was that Melziner would sketch out an elevation using a, a pen, a, a brush, and an ink. And it would have a quality to it, a quality of life. His, it was basically his signature. You know, it, it was his line. And when you look at the construction drawings or the technical drawings, they have that same, that same emotion, that same feeling, but of course they're pencil. And I believe that John Harvey would lay his tracing paper over the ink drawing that Joe did, and he would very carefully outline the brush stroke. So as the brush stroke became thicker and thinner based on pressure of Joe's hand, that translated into the drawing as well. So if you look at the uh, built scenery, it actually has the, the quality of line that came from Melziner's brush, which mm. I think was really unique. It's interesting because there, in I think the diaries, Joe Melziner will talk about his ex his experience when he was working as an assistant to Robert Edmund Jones. At that point, Robert Edmund Jones would draw out these, you know, incredibly beautiful, this incredibly beautiful drafting, but not on vellum. It would be on some sort of. Um, it was like know, brown butcher paper. Yeah, a, a denser sort of paper that you couldn't blueprint. There was only the original. So if anyone, like the shop, uh, uh, painters, uh, uh, electricians, whatnot, they had to be redrawn. And this was part of what Joe Melziner had to do. And finally, one day he convinced Robert Edmund Jones that they should be put on some kind of vellum or, as you said, onion skin so that they could actually be reproduced. And it was like a light bulb went on when Robert Evan Jones actually allowed uh, for this process to take place because they could suddenly in no time at all or very little time have a number of copies reproduced that had been drawn on vellum or on, on onion skin. So I suspect that was, um, you know, a process that developed through just the frustration of the, the mechanical process of or lack of uh, working with Robert Edmund Jones. When did you start experimenting with the model or three-dimensional form? Almost immediately, because I was allowed, while I was in the library, to make my drawings, I would continue to refine a drawing and I'd make a change, line quality, and I'd slip it under the original onion skin vellum drawing, and I could see where my line varied from 
the original line. And then I take it, my drawing out and I make a correction. I think it, the entire show took four weekend visits to the museum to document. But when I left, I had a fair copy. I could tell, I could guarantee that it was it was as if it went through a blueprint machine because I could visually compare the overlay. So I knew that it was accurate. Let me ask you this. The drawings, were they specific to the Morosco? Yes. The Morosco with the uh, out-of-town venue proscenium's indicated and the back wall indicated very quick, very quickly. No specific detail, but a, a width, like if it was at the Colonial in Boston, it was considerably narrower than at the Morosco, and the back wall depth, and maybe the balcony rail position for lighting. But um, it was drawn for the Morosco. That's something I want to get back to uh, in terms of the depth of the Morosco and the four stage and the plaster line. But we've got a few more things to cover first before we get down to that. The next thing to cover, so you actually created a three-dimensional model that was fully painted. Yeah. That's Oh, wow. Is that in quarter inch? It's in half inch. Really? Um, yeah. I, I, I have a, a, a nerd when it comes to models. I, I have a visceral reaction to them. And I think to half inch scale models in particular, I think for a theatrical application, for the amount of detail and quality, it takes no more time to build the half inch model than it would save to build a quarter inch model. It's the space that's the issue. Right. Uh, the original scale that Melziner worked in was was eighth inch, though, wasn't most it? Most often, most often his uh, rough plans and his lighting his lighting layouts were court, like quarter inch. Oh, they but, were. Uh, but the drafting was mostly in half inch, if not larger for detail. I see. The next thing to get to is how did you come to be connected with Mike Nichols and the revival of Death of a Salesman? That came about through Gene Donovan, production supervisor, who was working on the De Brian Dennehy version of Death of a Salesman Revival at the same time that I had just basically finished my model. And Gene happened to be in the studio working with, on another production with another fellow studio mate. And I talked to, to Gene a bit about what I did and picked his brain about what the differences were with the new production that he was working on and the original production. So from that conversation, Gene remembered that I had gone through the process of discovering the drawings and constructing the model. And when Mike Nichols decided he wanted to recreate the original design, Gene was the production supervisor on the, the Mike Nichols production. And he said, I have the person you need to talk to. The model exists. So it sort of began there. There was another designer associated with the process of recreating the design and and taking it through rehearsals and who had to leave because of a prior commitment right at the beginning. So I sort of jumped into that position. Mike was told the model existed. Uh, we were introduced. He said, well, bring it up. And so I you know, built a box to carry it in and I brought the model over to Mike's house. And he said, you know, I, I saw this production when I was a teenager and it still is with me. And I'm unpacking packing the model box and setting it on his library table. And it's, it's out and he drags a chair in front of it and he sits down in the chair and he slinks down to where his eye level would be from the orchestra seat that he was in. And he looked at it and looked at it wordless and he sat back up and he said, yep. That's it. And from then on, it was like a masterclass in a way. There were these incredibly talented people, Mike at the helm of it, who knew without a doubt that 
he wanted to use the model or, or the original design as well as the original music in the production. And, and once that was sort of okayed and it was okayed with the producers, it was just accepted. He did, in an interview, Mike Nichols said, well, I did make changes, but it's important when doing any production to return to the impulse, to examine it, and then you can change it. I think there's an obligation to understand how something began. In the case of Salesman, Miller said the setting was inside Willie Loman's skull. Mm -hmm. How can you not pay attention to that and to the show's beginnings? What I found out when we were on the original configuration of the set was that the set really helps you. It shows you where the characters are and in certain ways. But I did change a lot. I changed the actual set. That wasn't my understanding. I'm a little confused by that last quote. I think he's being a rather broad when he says he changed a lot. But I tell you, I discovered his process that you were talking about of, of getting to know why they did what they did. Because early on in January, right before rehearsals began, he and his assistant and I sat down in a conference room with the model in front of us. We had three different scripts in the room. We had the acting edition script. We had the 50th anniversary script. And we had the original working script, which had been found at the University of Texas in Austin, which is what the original cast used in rehearsals, as well as stage manager. Each one of us had a different script. And we went through the show line by line to see where they varied, stage direction by stage direction to see where they varied. And it became clear that the acting edition was Harold Clerman's direction. He did the tour. And the set, Mel Zener had changed the set according to wishes of Harold Clerman. So the directions... And stage directions that came and the ground plan that came out of that script were basically pushed aside. And we basically went back to the original working script. And Mike said, this is, seems silly, but I need to understand. I want to understand why they did what they did. And then I can decide whether I want to do that or not. So that's the way we went about staging. And as he worked himself through the show, once they got up from the table reads, he discovered things that either caused him concern or he thought he could make clearer. So the changes, there were only two or three. One change was just adding uh, physical curtains in the boys' bedroom dormer window. As a skeletal set, there were no real doors except for the screen door in the kitchen and a curtain that hung in the archway between the kitchen and the living room. But he wanted it for to cast shadows. Uh, and it was inconsequential to add. The second thing he wanted changed or added was an escape step down the back of the, the, the set for the boys. He had a thing about bathrooms. And um, at one point in a scene between Biff and, and, and Hap in their bedroom, uh, he has one of the boys go down the steps to the bathroom. And in the middle of these conversations, one of them offstage, you hear a slight toilet flush. He comes back up on stage. He just wanted to do that. Uh, but it served a second purpose of there was a mechanical point in the show where the boys' beds lifted down to the stage. And he wanted to be sure that the boys could get off the platform to continue the scene. That didn't exist in the original production. And there were times when the boys' bed, beds failed and they had to find a way to get off at the top of the platform. Right. I would have I would have loved to have been there for that, because I, I yeah. know I, in the, the research I was doing the first time uh, Mel Ziner and uh, Ilya Kazan was demonstrating it to Ilya Kazan, the bed would lower. So, as you said, the boys could 
change quickly into, I, I think they're football togs yeah. and whatever and, and get onto the stage. Uh, there was a, a uh, rather loud crunch and the mechanism stopped. And Ilya Kazan for a moment thought that Arthur Kennedy's head Head was crushed, crushed to death (laughs) and that he had just lost an actor. Joe Melziner said, I had reduced the salesman's house and he always refers to it as the salesman's house. He never says Willie Loman for some reason in those diaries. uh, Yeah. He always says the salesman's house to a series of three levels with the frames outline of the house forming an open skeleton. Some of the doors were simply open framework. Arches and windows were cut outs of wood, but were drawn and painted with a good deal of quality in their line. Mm -hmm. Given this rather stark background, whatever props there were would have to be highly significant in character. What I'm trying to point out or draw some sort of parallel there, that the windows were cutouts of wood, but were drawn and painted with a, a good deal of quality. He was he was quite the scenic artist. When you talk about being informed as a designer from the script, and you talk about something as fundamentally simple as profile scenery, which is basically what his salesman set is. And you're talking about those windows, which could be really awkwardly done if they're if they aren't artistic. And there's a that moment in the, the play early on when Willie gets back from the disastrous foray out and he says, What can't you open up some windows? It's stifling in here. And his wife says, Willie, the windows are all they're all open. And you look at this cutout scenery, and yes, the the lower sashes are raised up. All the windows are open, and, but it's not something that you could open or close. They're they're literally it's like they were painted and they cut out the you know the the negative space between. Arthur Miller couldn't have gone back and, and altered the lines to say, uh, okay, I'll I'll go open some windows because the windows were already open. It was a given. It was always going to be that the windows are open. So there was that kind of early on decision that was purposeful, and it couldn't have differed. It was the way it was. Well, Arthur Miller describes this Brooklyn house very specifically. He said, it had once been surrounded by open country, but it was now hemmed in and overshadowed by towering apartment houses, trees that used to shade the fragile seeming home against the open sky and hot summer sun, now were for the most part dead or dying. So in that one very simple paragraph in terms of Arthur Miller describing it, he gives you the season, he gives you the surrounding, he gives you the sense that the house is fragile. It's remarkable because you read that and then you look at the design and there's no transition between what Arthur Miller envisioned and, and what, what you see. Joe Melziner delivered. The idea of fragility gives the, the reason for that two-dimensionality, the lack of any kind of opaqueness or solidity. It also brilliantly supports the time changes, the idea of memory. It's a remarkable marriage of what the playwright envisioned and what Melziner uh, delivered. I'm a little unclear, though, Brian, uh, because I've heard different reports from different people. What was painted 
And were there any projections? Can you address that, not only from the revival, but from what you gleaned from your research from the original production? Exactly. I think there had been sort of a misconception that the original production had a magical backdrop that was somehow translucent, that had the apartment buildings on it, but that bled through that, uh, and revealed a drop of lead. That turns out to have just been incorrect. The original backdrop was specified in the drawings to have been painted on linen, which meant it had to have seams. The written directions are good, fine seams. There are going to be two of them in the backdrop. So we painted our backdrop on linen, which meant it wasn't translucent. It wasn't lit from the back, with the exception of the three windows that had light sources in them, neighbors', neighbors lights. What separated the backdrop from the physical set was a neutral scrim, which had applied on it a tracery of gnarled trees, dying trees that had been, all the limbs had been cut off and they were just burled, gnarled trees. In the construction drawings, being created one of two ways. One, painting latex line work on the back of the drop, which would give the opaque outline of the tree, or applying linen, cut out linen. They didn't use a shark's tooth scrim in those days. They used something called Hansen gauze, which you can't get today. My understanding is that it didn't have the stretch that shark's tooth scrim had. So painting on it with latex was easier to do. You wouldn't get all those puckers. So I believe they painted on with latex. We applied linen, cut out linen shapes of the trees to the fields, to the, to the shark's tooth scrim to achieve that effect. The leaves were simple projections. Originally, he had 26 projectors and he had a battery of them just upstage of the number one portal, which meant he brought the portal header down so he could hide the projectors and get a good shot upstage high. All of our projections, I believe, came from balcony rail. I could be wrong. And there were no slide designs for the leaf projections available uh, at the library. So what I did was I, I took that famous rendering of his with the leaves and I painted over them to capture the, the leaf shapes so that I had a, a field of leaves. And then I broke them up into individual gobos, basically for Brian McDevitt to put into his lights. I think we had, I think there were 12 different sources. And those literally just, the light on the backdrop was taken off the front face, which made the scrim opaque and the projection of the leaves over the entire set and onto the scrim, the neutral scrim, created the sense that the, the stage was flooded with light and leaves. And a lot of that also was helped with the fact that a good portion of the skeletal set itself had scrim backing. So there was, there was a surface to catch this projected image. That's simply how it was done. Was there a downstage scrim ever, or is that just sort of an illusion from the paint elevations? I think it was an illusion. I know, I think in an early scribbled floor plan, I think I saw a, a note for scrim downstage, but I think that's before they worked through the show. There was no need for a scrim downstage. Joe Milziner says, although Arthur Miller had done the basic rewriting, parentheses, to accommodate the seamlessness of the set design, he had made no attempt to say how transitions from one scene to another would be made. This was a problem for the director and the designer to work out together as we studied the model and ground plan. There are different versions of that story. 
My question, since I was not there and can't question any of that, how did you and Mike Nichols work on the transition? I mean, it's interesting that you all three were working on three different versions of the script together that you were invited into that process. But did were you also invited into the process of how Mr. Nichols worked with the transitions? Yes, uh, we not to deviate, but we there was a, a workshop. It wasn't really a workshop. It was more of an extended, intense table read about eight months before the show went into official rehearsals, where at the Duke Theaters, where we actually had a recreation, a, a rehearsal version of the set put up, including the platforms and the beds, so that the cast could figure, you know, get used to. But they rarely used it at that point. They basically sat around the table I was at most of those uh, sessions to answer questions, also just to observe. When the show went into actual rehearsals, the set was reset up and they used it. But I kind of differ a little bit. I, I think that the writing informs how those transitions happen. And if you look at the the scene in the second act where uh, the boys take Willie to, to a, treat him to a meal at a restaurant, and there is that transition there are several of them as Willie's struggling with reality. There's a scene with his neighbor's kid coming in, trying to spill the beans on Biff and, and telling Linda that Biff failed math and that he's not going to be able to graduate. And that's all happening simultaneous to the restaurant scene. And then you get further into that period of Willie splitting and you start to get hints of the girls at the restaurant are laughing and you start to hear laughing off stage where the, the, the woman in the hotel bathroom is is laughing and Willie goes over there that's all written and there's there and it, the transition is there it's Willie walks across the stage and the lights go out on the restaurant scene the boys leave and the waiter takes a chair and Willie's now in a hotel with the projected wallpaper on the scrim panels there's no furniture and when Biff comes in he's got his suitcase he sits down on his suitcase as a piece of furniture but there's no need for a physical transition and i think that's because of the way it was written when the idea for the design was originally presented to the producer Kermit Blumengarten thank you got Joe Melziner, Arthur Miller, and Ilya Kazan all together, and Melziner presented his idea, it was clear that it was going to require a lot more work on Arthur Miller's part to go back and rewrite those, rewrite the play in order to accommodate the transitions. So my suspicion from the documentation that exists is that indeed, Arthur Miller went back and specifically wrote how those transitions would interface with the a play, the original script that he had written. And it was hand delivered uh, to Ilya Kazan with those transitions written in. Now, it could be, I'm, I would not be surprised if in the rehearsal process, some things were augmented, changed or revised. But it's pretty clear that Arthur Miller wrote those transitions. Absolutely. Yeah. A including sound cues. I mean, the sound cues are really important. They basically are, create the transition. We should pay a little lip service, don't you think, to Alex North and the uh, original score? I'm assuming it was all re-recorded. What was the score originally? Why am I thinking that the score was originally live? That couldn't It was. 
Could, could it was. you talk a little bit about that from your uh, experience? The original score had, uh, I think it was two or three musicians. So it was a flute player, a bass, and maybe it was a cello or something. They were live in the theater up in an empty dressing room, and it, the sound was mic'd down to the, the show. We brought in a Broadway music supervisor who hired musicians and supervised the re-recording of that original score for production's use, but it was not live. What was it scored for? Was it a minimal number of instruments or? It was, it was, I think two or three. It was uh, very minimal. I think it was a cello uh, and a flute, I know. I'm not sure what the third one was. A trumpet, it was a trumpet. Great. It was interesting that Arthur Miller's inspiration for Willie Loman was a friend of his, who was actually a salesman Manny Newman. And he encountered Manny Newman at, I think it was at the Colonial Theater in Boston in 1947 at the opening of All My Sons. And Arthur Miller sees Manny Newman weeping and they re-encounter. Manny tells him what he's been up to. And he said at that point, Arthur Miller says, uh, wouldn't it be marvelous to be able to do a play where somebody is in two or three different places concurrently. Uh, Because Manny, being a traveling salesman, leaped around from, from place to place. He also said at the same time, there was something in him, in Manny Newman, which was terribly moving. It was very moving because his suffering was right on his skin, you see. And he goes on to, you know, talk about Manny Newman and his career as a salesman and how he was always being stepped on and how mechanization was causing the idea of of salesmanship to, you know, become history and a thing of the past. But he said that Manny ultimately committed suicide and that it helped confirm my feeling, Arthur Miller's feeling, uh, that this man was always half in darkness. The darkness split him in half. The play was basically looking from the edge of the grave at life. He also says in another quote about Willie Loman, he says, what the name really meant was a terror-stricken man calling into the void for help that will never come. Interestingly enough, very practically speaking, people would always say low man signified his station or position in life, a low man. Arthur Miller says that that's not true, that he realized later on that a low man, the name Loman came from a, a movie, a Fritz Lang movie called The Last Will of Dr. Mobius. The detective's name in the movie was Loman. Loman. And uh, just remember that. It's interesting because in The Ride Down Mount Morgan, one of the last plays that Arthur Miller wrote, the lead character is a bigamist and is lying to both sets of families so that neither one knows that he's the bigamist. And his last name is Lyman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, one technical thing I want to go back to, and, and the reason I want to go back to it is the notion of was the set design intentionally claustrophobic 
or was there just not enough space in the theater for it? Was it limited by the space? At the Morosco, from the plaster line to the back wall was only like 27 feet. And from the plaster line to the apron was only about five feet. At the Ethel Barrymore, where you did the revival, it was only 31 feet from the plaster line to the back wall. So 31 feet versus 27 feet isn't that much different. But what is remarkable, at the Morosco, there was only five feet from the plaster line, or for laymen, the curtain line, to, to the apron. And that ultimately there was a compromise where everyone met in the theater and they got rid of 11 seats on the first row in order to extend the apron to accommodate a lot of those, uh, you know, scenes that took place either in the lawyer's office, the restaurant, the hotel room or the grave, which back then in 1949 uh, represented a loss of $350 a week. It probably, in, in the revival in 2012, that would have been considerably more, uh, 11 seats. But specifically at the Ethel Barrymore, at the revival that, that you oversaw, how did, how did you all deal with uh, the four stage or the apron to accommodate the other locations? We did it exactly as they did it at the Morosco. It's funny, I always thought that the Morosco would have been one of the smaller theaters, but when I overlaid the, the ground plans, the, the theater's backstage layouts between the Morosco and the Barrymore are very similar. It's a large stage right lay, uh, wing where the load-in door is and a smaller stage left wing. The proscenium width is basically the same. Depth was just a little different. So the show fit in the Barrymore as it fit at the Morosco. And so uh, with the the apron treatment at the Barrymore, we followed the, the lead that they did at the Morosco. We built the apron to come out. We lost a few seats in the front row, I think. The apron was unique in that there was a step down in the center of it, which meant that um, that had to happen once the apron was far enough forward from the stage. So you didn't have to excavate into the stage. So by necessity, it sort of pushed it out. Had a knock-on effect on costs originally, because what it did was it put action on the apron where the apron never existed before, which meant that they had to bring in somebody to hang new lighting tormentor positions in front of the proscenium because they did, they'd never had to do that before. So in in order to bring the apron downstage, they also had to cut seats and bring in somebody to install lighting locations that didn't exist, extra cost, and extra lighting equipment to light an area that was now additional to uh, the original stage. So it was commendable of, of the producer to, uh, to agree to that. I think he saw the benefits. Well, also, it's legendary, the stories that are told about Mike Nichols and getting what he wants. 
I mean, very rarely, I think, was did anyone ever say no to Mike Nichols. I'm thinking for background, at the same time, Joe Melziner was also covering South Pacific, Anne of a Thousand Days, and the London production of Streetcar Named Desire. He was in a lot of places at once, especially when you, you think in terms of the limitations of communication at that time without the internet, without not even faxes at that time. <laughs> How anything got completed is rem is remarkable. Melziner said, the good theater artist is never actual. He omits the non-essentials, condenses the essentials, accents the details that are most revealing. He depicts only that part of the truth which he deems necessary to the course of the story. I think one thing that separates Joe Melziner, or as sort of indicates the turning point, is that he so clearly understood the idea of storytelling in terms of actively being interpreted in the set design. How essentially, since he also would design lights for his productions, how the design told the story that it was an integral part of the script that you couldn't separate the two. Did you all discover anything? I mean, did the sense of the the weight of the design and its marriage to the script, did that resonate for you at all in this particular production? Well, I think, I think my original response to Melziner's design when I first discovered it in college, in the library, Photographs. There, I think. I think it was that one iconic photograph that Eileen Darby took of the set lit, but nobody was on it. And I think you, when you talk about his ability to tell a story by, in his design, the story was there in that photograph, and that I think was one of the key things that led me to want to to have that story in model form in my living room. I can look at it when I want to. I can sit in front of it, and I can imagines thing you know the scenes happening i think he was really talented at that the people he worked with i think in inspired this in him or when you look at lee simonson's work when you look at robert edmund jones work when you look at joseph urban's work the photographs the renderings what we have the documentation of these designers that Joe Melziner worked with, it's very clear that they had some sort of deeper relationship in terms of their response to the pieces, the plays that they were working on. And we had never seen this before. It was like a whole new era in history. And I, and I think that's one reason why, you know, sort of Joe Melziner brings this idea into the 20th century in a way that these Lee Simons and Robert Edmund Jones and Joseph, o Joseph Urban predicted mm. in a way that there was a, a thinking, there was an artistic connection that no one had ever imagined the art of scenic design could render. Interesting. I, I agree. Brian, 
You got to work on one of the greatest classic American plays by one of the greatest American playwrights, designed by one of the greatest scenic artists, and no question, American's greatest director. How are you going to top that, Brian? <laughs> What's happening I, next? I mean, what what are you working on on now? I'm working on uh, popular musicals. I mean, at the time at the time of the experience uh, back in 2012, I knew then it was a once in a lifetime opportunity, and it happened at towards the end of his, Mike's life. This was a something he wanted to do. He said very often he was too old to work with assholes anymore. He just wanted to work with people who he liked, surround himself. And I think that that particular environment existed in this production, that he was extremely happy. But more than that, to be around him, he was the best storyteller. He was one of the smartest men I've ever met and incredibly kind. And just to be in his presence was really special. So I finished up that project and it was uh incredibly satisfying and of course i have the the, the model to keep looking back at and, and remembering it we'll see if we're ever lucky enough to strike that kind of gold again you were very fortunate because it wasn't uh it was two years later and he was no longer with us same with philip yeah both of them were within months of each other yeah no longer with us very sad Remarkable production, remarkable company of actors. You know, I, I think it was a. You know, he had, he had an eye and a sensibility for casting, which no one would ever even dare to, to commit to. And I think that was consistent throughout his entire career. He discovered people. He started careers. He put actors in roles that no one would ever think to put them in. He had an incredible group of designers that he worked with, but he was always his own fellow. You know, he was always true to himself and uh, he didn't pull any punches. It was, he knew what he wanted. And when he couldn't get what he wanted, the frustration was astonishing, you know, you, did, you didn't want to be there for him <laughs> or when he was disappointed at all. But anyway, Brian, is there anything you want to add? I would just say that from the very beginning, once it was acknowledged that this was the direction they were going to head in terms of recreating the design, which everybody was on board with, which was that uh, if we're recreating the design, let's also use the materials and techniques that they used originally back in 1949. Let's be as realistic in this recreation as possible. And everybody was on board, shops, producers. It was interesting during load-in, there was a young technician up on a tormentor out in the front of the house while set was sort of laying in pieces on the floor. And he looked at the floor and he said, what are we back in high school? And it was like, there was yet not the connection to what it was that was happening until it was all set up and it was lit and they lived in it and they saw the actors in it. And I've never seen stage technicians so protective of the set. We had a black canvas duct floor as they originally had, which we laid over the Barrymore stage. Great at sound deadening and it gave a great matte lighting quality, but it was treated with fire retardant. And when the actors sweat, the drips would turn little white splotches. They, they panicked. 
this is theater. This is life. This is what happens. But they were so protective. And I think they really, once it was up and they saw what it was, understood the worth of the project. To me, that was one of the more rewarding things. That's wonderful. One thing I remember reading in his diaries that he regretted that he had to finally start turning down the costume design as well, that for several productions, he embraced the idea of one designer designing scenery costumes and lights. But for the most part, I, I think until the end of his career, he held on to the lighting design position uh, as much as he could. I think of it as legacy. I think of it sort of as a bridge. And one reason why you were so, they were so fortunate to have you and you were so fortunate to be able to work on this kind of project, the connection from one generation, not only personality-wise or historically, but, but also in terms of how design was approached and who those people were that rose to the top that were the exemplars of how design came to be, it's important that somehow those connections not be lost, that they don't end up in boxes that no one ever opens up at Lincoln Center and ultimately will simply disintegrate at some point. So the, the enormous accomplishment here in terms of your participation in terms of Mike Nichols' participation, in terms of all of the actors, is the legacy continues. That young uh, technician that thought they were back in high school, finally, when everything is assembled, when the lights are turned on, when the actors are infusing the script with their own lifeblood and sweat, it suddenly makes sense. It, it comes back to life as it originally was intended to be seen and with the experience that uh, was originally intended to be communicated. And to me, that's what is the enormous accomplishment uh, of yours and uh, the entire company and the recreation and the revival of, of this production. So hats off to all of you. Remarkable achievement. And thank you so much. Thank you. For staying with it, you know, for being, uh, you know, for being that dedicated to the process and uh, never giving up on it and never being satisfied unless it was absolutely perfect, which the production was. So thank you, Brian. Thank you, John. We've run out of time. I'd like to thank our guests and you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please join us for new episodes featuring designers, playwrights, actors, and directors discussing the lives and careers of legendary theater luminaries and how their work developed. This is your host, John Arnone, for I Am the Space Where I Am. <laughs>